Today's reading comes from Joshua, Hebrews, James, and Matthew. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king, <coughs> the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gates were shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below." Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell where we are, what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land." So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. From Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. From James two twenty five. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? From Matthew 1, 5 through 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A prostitute who lives inside a walled city, protects spies from another country, lies to her fellow citizens about it, 
And then when every other person in her whole city is killed, saves herself, when the Israelites completely destroy the city and everyone who lives there, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and here we are in the second week of what we call Advent. Advent is this four-week time period that actually begins the church year calendar. Here we are at the end of the calendar year we think of, but Advent, we're in the second week of what begins the church year calendar. And it's a it's four weeks of really pregnant anticipation, preparing us in hope for the great inbreaking into the world uh, of God in Jesus Christ, Christmas. So during Advent, we, we're not yet fully celebrating Christmas, but we're anticipating it. We hear Christmas songs on the radio. We buy lots of presents. We attend Christmas concerts and plays. We're making plans to, to get to the family. We gear our Sunday worship towards Advent and Christmas that's coming. And so we preach a, a series of Advent sermons building up to Christmas, you know, traditional stuff. Like last Sunday when Pastor Kevin preached about Tamar, a woman who's mistreated by the patriarch Judah of Israel, but secures her place by pretending to be a prostitute, sleeping with her father-in-law and bearing him twins, right? And then this week, as we've just heard in our scripture reading, another prostitute who becomes the lone survivor when Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. I mean, we don't usually tell the story we just read in our VBS version of, of uh, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Merry Christmas. So what, what is going on? Well, even though these are very weird biblical stories, probably the weirdest that I've seen used for Advent, I'm actually very excited about this Advent series that we're doing that we're calling the Mothers of Jesus because even though they at first don't feel very Christmassy, I think they really are. This series of Christmas preparing sermons is in fact entirely appropriate because it's actually where the New Testament itself begins. It's where the story of Jesus, the one whose birth we're celebrating, begins. And we're getting this idea of the mothers of Jesus or foremothers from the first 17 verses of the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel, the gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew begins this beginning of the New Testament in a kind of odd way to us with a long genealogy, the long and illustrious family tree of Jesus that starts back with the first Jewish person, Abraham, and through all the twists and turns of the biblical characters to the high point of King David, all the way down to Joseph and Mary of no room in the end, have your baby in a barn fame, those ones we think about at Christmas a lot. But most intriguing, Matthew doesn't just give us a genealogy of the all-important famous and infamous men, but rather Matthew very intentionally highlights five women in this genealogy. And of course, and men, you need to remember this especially, there were women at every stage of the genealogy, right? But Matthew chooses particularly to highlight five of them. So who are these special women? Well, you think they would be the, the big mama, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, right? No. Matthew highlights five women who are in the Bible but are not necessarily the ones, again, we would think of. Tamar, last week, Rahab, this week, Ruth, Bathsheba, and then finally Mary. Now, students of the Bible have long wrestled with why these women, of all the women that Matthew could choose, why highlight these? And there are quite a few connections we can make between them. Let me just point out a couple. In every case, these women are involved in rather awkward sexual situations. In most cases, the situation is not the woman's fault, but nonetheless, there's some impropriety and in in awkwardness in the situation. You can think back to each of those stories. 
But I think what seems to be the most important connection of each of these five women, or at least the first four, I should say, that Matthew highlights, is that with the exception of Mary, and she is exceptional, each of these women are actually Gentiles, women who are outside of the covenant people of Israel, but who by their strength, their boldness, and their faith, they each actually enter into the story of Jesus and Israel uh, completely. So here at Sojourn, what we decided to do is follow the Bible's lead this Advent season and just think together over these weeks about these women and their stories and how they connect to the Christmas story. So today, again, we're talking about Rahab. And for today, what I wanna do is I wanna, we started here with Matthew's genealogy. I first wanna look back and, and think for just a few minutes about Rahab's story and what happens. And then I wanna look forward to another story in Matthew to see how they might be connected. And then finally, I'll just ask, what does this have to do with you and me, our real lives here as we prepare for Christmas? Let me pause and, and pray once more before we jump into Rahab's story. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, approach you as ones in need. I know that um, there's all kinds of things going on in our lives uh, during a week, and here we're gathered, some people are here reluctantly, some people are here joyfully, some people are here in desperate need, some people are here apathetically. God, we believe that you're in control and I just ask you to speak. I'd ask you to give life to our thirsty souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the story of Rahab takes place uh, during really one of the most important, the most important time in Israel's history, and that's what we call the Exodus. It's right after God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, led by Moses. And through a bunch of twists and turns caused by the people's sin, Moses and his generation turn out don't actually get to enter into the promised land. They've been rescued from Egypt and they're promised to enter into what today we would call Palestine or Israel. But Moses and his generation don't get to because of their sin. And all that has passed now and the successor to Moses, this young man who's now grown up, Yahashua, or Yeshua, or we translated into English the name Joshua, God is going to use this Yahashua to lead the people into the promised land. But before they can do this, they have a problem. They have to drive out the people there, the dreaded um, and fierce Canaanites. And the first problem they face is this great walled city right across the Jordan that is called Jericho. So wisely, for I know the story, Joshua sends these spies ahead and we just read it to plan their attack. This is actually reminiscent because Joshua had been a spy himself way back the generation earlier, had been one of the spies, but now he's the leader in sending these spies into the promised land. So the spies go, we saw in verse one that when they go into the city of Jericho, they figure a good place to lay low is a brothel, probably makes sense, Rahab's establishment. So that's where they go, hoping in secret. Apparently they weren't very good spies. I don't know if they were like wearing, you know, some kind of goofy nose and glasses or something, but apparently they weren't very good spies because the whole city knows they're there. And so the king of Jericho hears not only that there are Israelite spies there, but even that they visited Rahab's house, as we read. And so he sends word to her, of course, to just hand the men over so that the city can be spared and the spies won't get away. And we saw in Joshua chapter two, the verses four to seven, though that rather than handing them over, she hides the men under the pale yellow stalks of flax on her roof. And she, then she tells the guards that they fled. 
Now that is a very odd thing. It's a very odd thing. Why would she do this? Why would she choose to side with these foreign spies who are there to destroy her city and her people? Was she just a simple traitor? Well, I don't think so. And let me read for you again these verses that we already read, but they're important to hear again. I think we learn why in verses eight to 11. Here they are again. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below." See, Rahab's not just a pragmatic traitor. She's actually heard about Yahweh, Israel's God, and she believes that he's the true God worthy of worship and obedience. So out of this faith, out of this inspiring faith, she asked the Israelites to spare her and her family. She's heard of God's mighty power. She trusts in his power more than she does in this walled city. And so the Israelite spies, grateful for her sparing their lives, promise her that, of course, if she allows them to escape when they overthrow the city, she will be spared. And that's, in fact, what happens. If you continue reading in Joshua beyond what we read, she lets them down by a rope outside the city. Um, after that, she hangs a scarlet thread to indicate which is her house. And then after the famous Battle of Jericho, remember that, again, where God has the Israelites march around the city playing Jewish jazz for six days, right? And then on the seventh day, the walls miraculously fall down, maybe all except her part. Joshua honors the promise and she spares Rahab and her family. And even more than if you keep reading in Joshua, in Joshua chapter six, we see that she actually became part of the Israelite nation. She made her life among them. She wasn't just spared, she actually entered into the people of God. And from within the Old Testament story, we actually don't know much more about the details of what happened, but there's actually a lot of Jewish tradition about Rahab. People were very, the Jewish people were very interested in her. And one tradition tells us that she actually married Joshua and became part of the, the lineage of Joshua. But there are other Jewish traditions, the one that Matthew follows, that says that she married a man named Salma or Salmon in the Greek version, who actually was one of the spies that she had hid. And there are a couple of important things to note about this. First of all, Rahab became in the Jewish tradition then a highly esteemed example of what's called a proselyte, a Gentile who puts her faith in the true God and then is included, at least in part, in the benefits of God's people. She's not just spared again, but, and then left alone, she actually enters the people of God. So we see her mentioned in a lot of the rabbinic writings in an ancient author called Josephus and twice in the New Testament. Let me read these for you again. Hebrews 11, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. James 2, in the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing that this little, odd, kind of uncomfortable story um, becomes a very important part of the Jewish and Christian tradition. And essential to understanding it is precisely this, that she had great faith. She didn't just have right doctrinal understanding. She had faith that looked like 
making a bold claim and making a bold uh, decision to side with the Israelites rather than her own people. And she was rewarded for that. So that's the first thing to note. She becomes a hugely important example of faith. And then the other important thing to to note is that Rahab's husband, Salma, was the son himself of an important Israelite, Nashon, who was from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, and who actually married, we know from the tradition, Aaron's sister of Moses and Aaron fame. Thus, in Nashon and then in Salma, you have the uniting of these two tribes of Judah and Levi, the kingly tribe and the priestly tribe. And this continues on, as Matthew's genealogy points out, so that Rahab and her husband Salma have a son named Boaz, who also marries a Gentile, notice, the one Ruth, who we have a whole book in the Old Testament about. And then Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse, we met back when we did our series on 1 Samuel and the life of David. Jesse, who was the father, of course, of King David. So it's just remarkable to think that by this act, Rahab becomes the great-grandmother of some long generations of David himself. And this is where Rahab's story begins to intersect with Christmas because of its connection with Jesus. As the second of these five crucial and unexpected women in Jesus' lineage, Rahab is underscored because she is this example of God's providence. She's a Gentile who enters into the line of Israel. And because of her great bold faith, she is honored and becomes part of the people of God. And what I want you to do is keep that in mind as we jump ahead about 1,300 years to Jesus. And I said, I wanted to start with the genealogy, go back and look at Rahab. And then I want to jump ahead to Jesus' day and look at another story. And this is, I like to say, the story of another Joshua and another Canaanite woman. And the story I want to look at comes from Matthew chapter 15. Now, as one who has the opportunity to teach a lot through the Gospels and and preach and teach from Matthew in particular, this has always been one of the most intriguing and perplexing stories for me. It's really quite short, so let me just read it for you. We'll put it on the screen as well. This is from Matthew chapter 15. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, saying, send her away, for she keeps crying after us. And he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And then the woman came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. She said, he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to the woman, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is a very interesting story. And in fact, there's a lot in this story that I'm not gonna be able to explain for you today. Um, There are some confusing and perplexing things like why Jesus, who everywhere else in the gospels is shown to be compassionate and kind and welcoming, why he's so offish towards her at first. Or another question is, why would he say he's only come to the lost sheep of Israel when right from the beginning you have all kinds of Gentiles that he's healing and welcoming and the whole book of Matthew ends at this climactic point of the blessing to all the nations. 
Those are good questions. Maybe you didn't have those questions. Sorry, I've added them uh, to your perplexion of this. I have answers for those of those, but we don't have time uh, to get into them. And also, I want to highlight something different. What I want to highlight for us today is that I think Matthew has crafted this story from Matthew 15 so that you and I will see its close connection with that other familiar story of Rahab. You see, Matthew, like all biblical authors, communicates true stories in such a way that readers, if they, if they ponder it, will recognize that the Bible constantly parallels itself. And I think we're supposed to think of Rahab when we read Matthew 15. Here's why I think this. Just a few kind of rapid fire bullet points about why when we read Matthew 15, we should actually think about the story of Rahab. First of all, all of Matthew 14 and 15, if you read it, is intentionally referring to the story of the Exodus. What you have in those chapters is Jesus miraculously produces food in the wilderness, just like Moses did, and he walks on water. These are intentional connections, just like they walk through the Red Sea, that, that are referring to the Exodus, evoking the Exodus in all these chapters. Second, although we can't see it immediately in English, but I tried to kind of hint at it before, there are lots of connections that we, you and I often don't make between Jesus and Joshua because those sound like different names. But in both Hebrew and Greek, those are actually the same name. Anyone reading in Hebrew or Greek would hear the same name, Jesus and Joshua. We think of the distinction, but it's just because of the way those, those words came through Latin and into English. They're actually the same name. So whenever you're reading about Jesus, most biblical readers are thinking about Joshua as well. I think that's a connection. Matthew here refers to Tyre and Sidon. Sidon is a notorious pagan city that's mentioned in the book of Joshua as well, just following our story. Matthew introduces probably the most telling thing. He introduces this story by calling the woman a Canaanite. That's precisely, again, what Rahab was, which you might say, well, that's no big deal. But you have to realize there were no Canaanites in Jesus' day. They were long gotten rid of. The Mark, actually, the Gospel of Mark, calls her what she was more technically, a Syrophoenician woman. So why in the world would Matthew call her a Canaanite woman? I'd say it's precisely because he's wanting us to think of that story of the Exodus and the story of Joshua. It'd be like if someone said, uh, I'm from the Confederate States of America. The Confederacy doesn't exist anymore, but that would be saying a lot. It would be evoking a whole narrative, and that's what's happening here as well. And the woman calls Jesus the son of David, and it becomes very clear that he is separate from her. He's of a different race. He's of the Davidic line, and she is not by the way she responds. And then most importantly, I think, we see that this Canaanite woman's actions and faith parallel Rahab remarkably. She's heard of Jesus' power. She implores this Jesus or Joshua for mercy, even though she's an outsider. She's bold about that. She's persistent. And then she is commended for having great faith and she receives what she longs for, healing or salvation, which are the same word actually in Greek and Hebrew as well. Friends, this is how the Bible works. When we read it over and over again with ears to hear, we begin to realize that all these stories are interconnected and mutually informing. And there's actually one more massive connection that I want to bring out in the thread I wanna pull from both the Rahab story and the Canaanite woman story, and it's this. There is, we learn from both of these stories, there is a virtue greater 
than justice and it's mercy. There is a virtue greater than justice, it's mercy. There's a virtue greater than justice or law keeping and it's mercy or compassion. Here's what I mean. In the story of Rahab, she is part of the Canaanite people, the people that God has explicitly commanded to Moses and to Joshua to completely destroy because they will lead God's people astray. Yet because of her faith, she becomes the first exception to that very clear command to destroy. The law, if it were enforced to the letter completely, would not allow this. And Joshua knew this. But there was something Joshua also knew, commanded by God, greater than mere obedience. And that greater virtue was compassion and mercy. Joshua spares Rahab in righteous compassion because that's what God himself values. So too then with the new Joshua, Jesus, even though there was in Jesus' day bitter fighting and animosity, there was you know, swords drawn and blood spilled between the Jews and the Gentiles in Palestine in Jesus' day all the time. This new Jewish Messiah, this new Joshua, this Jesus does not drive out or crush this woman, but instead welcomes her with compassion and mercy in response to her faith. And it turns out that when you read the Gospel of Matthew, that is a major theme all throughout, that God is merciful and compassionate, and so should we be. In fact, this is the great source of the conflict that Jesus has with the religious conservatives of his day. The Pharisees were law keepers. They were sincere about following the law to the letter. They insist on justice in every situation. Sabbath laws must be kept, the rejection of the impure and the outsiders. And the reason they have so much conflict with Jesus and he has conflict with them is because he is continually emphasizing instead something greater than strict adherence to the law, and that's mercy. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable that I just said that, welcome to Phariseeism. This is precisely the source of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, that he emphasizes mercy over justice. In fact, twice in those conflicts, he quotes Hosea 6.6, where it says that God desires for us to have compassion. God desires mercy or compassion for people more than he cares about just our obedient sacrifices. And if you're still not convinced, let me read for you what he says at the end of his life in Matthew 23, when he's in this final sort of diatribe against what's wrong with the religious conservatives. He says this, woe to you, Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, or it's actually better translated there, righteousness, mercy, and faithfulness. It's not justice here in the sense of um, justice that I'm talking about, like always following the law. That's exactly what he's been fighting against. It's righteousness, mercy, and faith or faithfulness. He says, you have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, there are a lot of links between these two women's stories, but this strongest chord, I think, is this one, that in each case, the law prescribed one thing, but Joshua and Jesus modeled something greater, 
which is mercy or compassion. And let me give you one more text that speaks this way. The book of James says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment or justice. Now there's still just one question standing before us and that is, okay, that's fine. But how in the world does this connect the story of Rahab and Canaan and this Canaanite woman so far away in history, so far away from our experience, how does that connect to you and me? And particularly as we head into Christmas, how is this an Advent sermon? Well, to connect that together, let me give you one encouragement and one exhortation. First, the encouragement. The truth that mercy is a deeper virtue than justice or law keeping is not just this abstract ethical idea, but it's teaching about how our God is himself. And it's teaching about the core of why the gospel and Christmas exist. God is a God of justice and that's good and right. There must be justice in the world and there is a time coming where God will set the world to right, that's right. But thank you, Lord, our God is not only a God of justice, but more beautifully, he is a God of compassion and mercy and comfort, even when we don't deserve it. This is the basis of the gospel itself. While the wages of sin is death, Paul says, that's the just payment is death. The free gift, the gracious gift of God is eternal life. You see, there is a beautiful room that is justice, but it turns out to be only the, the foyer or the lobby into a beautiful reality, a kingdom that is mercy. Joshua's treatment of Rahab, Jesus' treatment of the Canaanite woman, show us that God himself, show us how God is with his broken creatures, and that's good news. And just like Rahab and this other woman, knowing that this is how God is, that he's both powerful and good, this invites us to draw near boldly, casting ourselves at his merciful and beautiful feet, whereupon he reaches down, raises us up and heals and rescues. You see, what we are celebrating during Advent and on Christmas morning is the fact that this same powerful and compassionate God has actually come in the flesh and chosen to humbly dwell among his own created humanity in flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And what does that incarnated God look like? How does Jesus show up with people? The ultimate revelation of God himself, he shows up with great kindness and compassion toward all who cast themselves upon his mercy. So as we approach Christmas, I first just want to invite you to consider anew or maybe for the first time that the celebration of the incarnation at Christmas is a celebration of God's mercy his mercy, not his justice, his mercy manifested in the world, even as it was to Rahab and to this Canaanite woman in Jesus' day, so for us. And I have an exhortation as well, and it flows right out of that encouragement, and is this. Because God is merciful before and beyond him being just, so too 
should our lives be marked by the greater virtue of mercy over justice? Because that's true of God, so too should our lives be marked by the greater virtue of mercy over justice. And it's hard to imagine a more uh, telling opportunity to apply mercy over justice than at Christmas. Let me think with you about that. Maybe you have a kid coming home from college with a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you don't like or approve of. Could you show mercy and compassion in that situation? Could you? I'm inviting you to. How about the flare-up of conflicts with adult children that you might have at this time of year? Or you, adults, conflict you have with your parents. Maybe you just have this knot in your stomach of thinking about what's about to happen in the next couple of weeks because you're getting together. And these are probably based on real hurts, old wounds. I get it. You may be absolutely just and right in being mad and hurt. But can you move through that room of justice into something more beautiful and true, mercy and compassion? How about that weird uncle, right, <laughs> that's going to be at the dinner table? Can you actually not just be annoyed, but actually step towards compassion and mercy? Or how about maybe you have some aggressive siblings or cousins that you're going to see who don't like your political views, they don't like your religious views, they don't like your economic views, they don't like your taste in literature or music or how you use a fork, whatever it is. <laughs> Instead of getting activated, maybe you're just, maybe they're completely being jerks. Can you be more than just and be merciful and compassionate? Remembering that they're broken as well. Or how about spouses who are maybe a little bit more on edge at this season because of any or above of the all things that are the things that are happening about to happen, the stress? You know, surprise, surprise, Christmas doesn't make all the other hurts and wounds and arguments you've had for the previous 11 and a half months miraculously go away with your spouse. And maybe you're just, maybe you've been wronged, wife or husband. Can you? move as God himself does through the justice to something more beautiful, and that's mercy. Parents with children who are less, great, less than grateful for the presence and the great experiences you're having together, maybe you're getting together as a family, making gingerbread houses, and instead of the joyful Christmas memories, it's bickering and mean words and rudeness, and, and surprise, surprise, you know, shaming them and yelling them doesn't make it more joyful. It's weird. I try it every time, right? <laughs> When you see that child acting rudely or young people, when you see your sister acting rudely or your brother, maybe you're just to be angry, but can you move beyond justice to compassion? Are you filling the blank? In fact, I'd invite you right now to think of someone in some situation coming down the pike as we head towards Christmas where you are mad or hurt or embittered. As we head towards Christmas, can we remember Rahab and how she found mercy? Can we remember the Canaanite woman and how she found compassion? And then can we show ourselves to be followers of Jesus, children of God who are like him? That's what that means. 
and be the same way? Can we make even just small steps toward valuing mercy because that's how God is over justice, allowing mercy to triumph over judgment? With God's help, we can. And this genealogy that Matthew gives us in the story of Rahab and the Canaanite woman, these wonderful and mysterious women, God loves to just shock and rock our world, to turn our values upside down. And that's just such a beautiful thing about these stories of Rahab and the Canaanite woman and of Christmas itself. And as we come to the table, this is, this morning, I want to highlight for you a table of mercy. It is a place that no matter what happened last night or this morning or this week, that there's mercy. If God can have mercy on these broken people, a Canaanite prostitute and others, not that that's the worst kind of person, I don't mean by that at all, but if God can show mercy in these completely, what to our eyes feel like unexpected places, he has mercy for you. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna break this bread and invite you as we take of the broken bread and of the cup that represents the merciful blood poured out. And if you're a believer, if you are one who is part of the people of God because you're trusting in that our God is the God of heaven and earth, then come forward, partake of this table of mercy and renew your joy this morning. Let's pray.